some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird get a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. It's actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock. You know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. So, Nathaniel, it's been a little while since you've been on the show, and 
you know, I know you've been really busy working. You got a lot going on in your life. Um, but for uh, Monster X has grown exponentially. It's crazy. And so for a lot of our new viewers that maybe have not listened to some of the archive shows, um, can you uh, just tell the uh, the audience a little bit about yourself? And um, you, you know where you're from, your background, and then we'll get into uh, you know your original um, uh, Sasquatch experience. Oh sure. Um, well, I was born in, in Michigan, middle of nowhere, <laughs> small town. Uh, didn't really see or do a whole lot. I just grew up in the country, you know, around out deer hunting and camping, doing a lot of just outdoor stuff. That's pretty much what I was into, uh, bushcraft and just anything to do with outside was kind of something I spent time doing. Um, my first experience uh, happened July 24th, uh, 2009, uh, so right around midsummer. Uh, it was about 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I was out actually scouting for my first year of possible deer hunting. I saw a TV show about it, wanted to give it a whirl and see what would happen. <laughs> so I went out and I started scouting for deer out uh, off the backside of my grandmother's property and our property um, and onto our neighbor's property. He was cool if I just scouted around to figure out where stuff was bedding down or moving or where they were. Uh, the uh, bachelor groups of young bucks were holding up during the later part of the season. I was going to plot that all out. So I'd started in the summertime just kind of mapping out where all the does were bedding down, uh, spending a lot of time and playing the wind. I was out and I covered already my grandmother's field and part of ours, and I was cutting back around um, some of the rock piles because I noticed that the deer like to bed up around these rock pile areas for whatever reason, possibly lick minerals off them or something of that matter. Um I started walking the quad trail because it was the quietest way. You couldn't, like, uh, make a whole lot of noise because it was mowed most of the time or it was so run out by uh, trucks and quads that it was exposed soil. So it didn't, you didn't make any noise walking on it. Uh, I started walking um, toward the east side. Yeah, the east side along the popple. And I was cutting to the left, kind of following the wind of it all. Where you could bend in and out the forest line does on the backside of this property, and uh, I got kind of like just around the first bend, and I could see uh, a darker silhouette, kind of like patching in and out between some of the young popple. You know that young popple that comes up after like uh, a clear cut has been done. After a few years, it pops up real, you know, real quick, lean and tall. Yeah. So, yeah, it, I could see a dark silhouette moving through. And it, it didn't look particularly fast or anything at the moment from that distance. Uh, and I just kind of assumed it must have been the neighbor guy. He was out plotting for stands for the fall, I don't know, for deer hunting. And so I, I thought I was just going to walk up and ask him if he saw any deer or anything. Uh, and I started following the trail just quietly because I'm not going to yell that far off and spook stuff up. The whole point of me being out there is just to see what's bedded down. Um, so I, I'm just walking and looking in that direction, looking at the ground, looking around for deer, seeing if he's spooking up anything, if I'm spooking up anything. Uh, 
get up to right around 180 feet and just starts looking kind of odd to be to the neighbor, but still, like, I'm just far enough away and in the tree line that it's hard to tell exactly what I was looking at. Got up to 150 feet, you know, because I'm just, like, walking and looking at the same time. Uh, and there's something odd, uh, very odd all at that point about the way he looked, the movement uh, that he was exhibiting, the going through the young trees. It was just very odd. Uh, and then I saw parts of sun hitting uh, what I later would find to be hair. And it just, they're just, it just didn't look like clothing. Um, finally got up to right around 120 feet and we're kind of converging to the same point because I'm heading east and this thing is coming in from the north and kind of heading south. So we're like kind of converging on each other. Uh, I'm at about 120 feet. I'm dead stopped at this point because I know there's something really weird. Just proportionally, there's something weird going on. Um, like angles of the body were in different places than they should have been. Uh, like, for instance, he, he he wasn't the most fit guy. Uh, he liked his beer and uh, his uh, food. So he wasn't exactly the leanest guy out there, but whoever or whatever this thing was, uh, long-limbed, uh, very muscular in posture and body structure, uh, Finally, I'm watching it, and it just, I just watched it kind of push back some of this popple, and it just with one arm kind of swept it back into the left of its left arm. Uh, and that's when I knew right away that that just wasn't the neighbor guy. <laughs> very, very, yeah, just, just not the neighbor guy. We'll go with that. Um, right. And I'm watching it go through the popple, and it finally comes out and hits, uh, it clears the whole tree line. And... He just stepped right out into the sun, right in front of me. Uh, it was about 4.30, so the sun's coming in from behind me, pretty much, to the west, and over top of my head and hitting towards it. So I, I don't know if that's why I didn't notice me sooner, is it was kind of sun-blinded or something. But it stepped out to the path, uh, right at the quad trail. Well, we're right in front of the quad trail, I should say. Like, it came out, kind of stopped. It looked down, like at the trail, and then it looked up straight in front of it, straight to the south, down at the trail again. And it just did this about three times, three, four times. Uh, and it then, like, in between doing that, it finally, like, at the third or fourth time stopped and must have seen me at the corner of its eye as, like, a silhouette against the sun or something because I don't know. I didn't move at that point. I wasn't moving. I was perfectly frozen. I was wearing a camo shirt, and I'll never forget. It's, like, three sizes too big. Um, I'm just standing there. Uh, and it finally, like, double takes. It was like the head kind of yanked a little bit in my direction and yanked back left and then yanked all the way back around. And it, when it turned its head all the way, it turned at the waist uh, and the shoulders and then rotated its foot out, its left foot out and kind of sidestepped a little bit. Just just a little bit, just on an angle, like about maybe 15 degrees. Um, and that's when I could really see in its right arm, uh, there was a a dead fawn. Uh, the meat, you could tell, was all stripped of it. Uh, back legs, hind quarters, even the meat between the spinal column um, and discs. Uh, hide was rolled up like a sleeping bag, like just like how you, how you roll up a sleeping bag. 
all the way up to from the base of the tail all the way up to uh, the neck, the base of the neck. Um, the front shoulders still had meat on them, and the neck obviously did because the hide was still coating over the musculature and bones there. But it looked like basically the whole hind quarters all the way up to behind the shoulder blades had been stripped of meat and no organs or anything. Uh, at that point, it locked eyes with me, and I remember I'll never, ever forget uh, that exact moment that, like, it wasn't freaking me out quite as bad. Like, I was still in shock when it was looking at me, but just complete tit fear hit me the moment its eyes hit me because then I knew that I was completely recognized, uh, and no longer was I, like, lost in that moment of what exactly am I looking at, and I was more terrified just that, oh, crap, this this thing is looking right at me and knows I'm here, and it doesn't look particularly pleased. <laughs> um, we were, like, practically looking at each other the same look. Like, I remember sitting there, like, my, I know that my face must have been seized up. I must have looked, like, terrified, confused, and everything. Uh, my mouth was a little open, I'm sure. And I, this thing was doing the exact same thing. Um we probably stared at each other uh, 10, between 18 seconds. Um, that thing, like, and it, but the thing was about it all was that it felt like legitimately an hour. Just, just it felt like time was all around me and this thing was completely frozen. Um, I remember all my my uh, heart rate so high. And my uh, that my vision, I could see my in with my vision, my eyes were pulsing. Like you know, the blood when your blood pressure spikes way up, and then you stop running, and you can feel like after you've done a long run, you can feel the pressure behind your eyes, and it's like every time your heart beats, it like moves your vision a little bit. Uh, that's what I was feeling. My all my muscles were locked out. I just remember like coming out of it after the thing had finally left, and I was like squeezing my hands as hard as I could. Even my toes, my legs were locked up. I couldn't run. Um, like, that was the physiological response I was having to just its presence and having the thing look at me. Uh, right. We were looking at each other, and it finally, like, broke away its contact. It was, it was like, hard, hardcore staring me down um, with a look of confusion but then, like, it yanked its head away from looking directly at me, down into the left, and scowled. Um, all the facial muscles seized up really tight. Deep wrinkles became more apparent on the face, the forehead, um, upper 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 uh, nasal structure. Uh, even you could see the muscle flare out from the ascending radii area off the back of the jaw, that, that line where it transitions from the ear going almost level toward the chin. I could see the muscle above that seize up really tight. Uh, and it, its lips scrunched up. On, it, like, it had thin lips, but it was human-structured, but a wider mouth, very slightly wider. But when it scrunched its mouth up, mouth up it, its lips went very flat. Um, like, just there's a lot of flexibility in the oral structure. Also, the teeth area... You could tell just when it turned away from me that the entire dental structure was thick. Like you could tell, like it. 
I don't want to say it protruded, but it stuck out farther than what you would expect for like a person, but not nothing like a chimpanzee. Um, so I could tell with its expression that it was like it act. It was the type of expression you'd have when you're trying to disassociate your thoughts from looking at something. Almost like imagine an old man in pure disgust of seeing like a young teenager doing something that he doesn't approve of. Like you know you don't look at them, you disregard them, and you get a disgusted look. Um, that was the behavior, very similar behavior. Like, I do not approve of this type type of reaction. Um, it looked away, scrunched up its face, and then it just dropped its right arm, like from the upright, like ninety degree angle, where it was how it was holding the fawn draped over its forearm and in its hands. Uh, it just flopped it on the ground, and then swung its right leg over after kind of pivoting on the knee, its left knee, and swung its leg over to the, toward the left, its right leg toward the left, and then it did a U-turn. Instead of cutting through the brush, it did a U-turn around the brush and hit the thickest part of the brush around the backside it could. Um, The whole way, just kind of like tearing it up and plowing it out of its way, uh, like deliberately, as if uh, I'm, I'm... pretty sure to this day that it was a show of strength. It was to demonstrate, you don't want to follow me because look what I can do type of thing. Like, you know, that's what I got. That's the sense I got of watching it. Um, and it cut back kind of more toward the heading back north because it was going from north to south, now more of a northeastern uh, direction, more north and east, but it was going that direction. Uh, I remember standing there, like I wanted to run so bad, but I remember standing there for at least two minutes, completely terrified. Why can't I run? Why can't I run? I need to leave. This thing's going to come back. I just remember having, go, cycling through my head all the ter- worst things that could possibly happen, but I was physically locked up. I could not move. And but when I finally came out of it, like my, the shock started to wear off just, just enough that I finally realized I could move after about two minutes. And the second I realized I could move, I'm like, I'm leaving. And I turned and I ran the whole way back to my house, uh, which at this point was about a third of a mile through the, on the trail. Um, but I didn't, follow the trail. I was too freaked out. I just plowed right through blackberry brambles the whole way back. So it was more like a quarter mile. Yeah. But uh wow. went back to the house and I got my rifle. Uh my mom, my dad, my cousin and my brother. Um and I remember trying to load the magazine on my uh three oh three British rifle and I'd put six shots in the clip one in the chamber, racked it, and had it off safety. And I was bringing my mom and my cousin and my dad and my brother. And my dad thought I was crazy and was telling me to not to stop making up stories. And I remember then, like, they saw me shaking so bad that I couldn't even get the magazine loaded in the, in the rifle. Like, and I was pure white. I had sweat dripping down, like, my forehead and off my neck. And that's what convinced them to at least come look. Uh, drugged them out there, and we looked at where it was at. But I, the whole time out, I'll never forget, I'm, I was reliving the experience, even just walking back out that evening with them. Um, 
constantly thinking that around any tree this thing could still be there and jump out and who knows. Uh, but we went, we investigated the area, we looked at the dead fawn, which was still there. Um, and at the, at the point, finally, it, I forgot to mention, at the two minutes of standing there, I noticed that all the birds and squirrels and wildlife all of a sudden started doing alarm calls after about two minutes after it was gone, a minute to two minutes after it was gone. But I remember getting back out there, and um, that was the only comfort was that when the thing was gone, it would be all the animals were making noise, and when we got back out there, the animals were still chirping and freaking out. Uh, particularly blue jays and squirrels were going off. Um, but, and my cousin actually, who was saying I was making the whole thing up, ended up finding two tracks um, in the bush line where it went, where I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to go in after it in that direction. Uh, but he did, and he found two tracks. And uh, that pretty much sums up the bulk of the experience. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, I've heard it before. Uh, I've heard you tell in person. I've had you on the show before, but it's still an amazing, an amazing encounter because of the the amount of detail um, you you got. I mean, how long how long did this um, encounter? How long did it last? I mean, I'm sure you don't know exactly how long, obviously, but it seems like an eternity. How long did you know this encounter last? Uh. Probably entirety from the point of first seeing it from the field and thinking it was the neighbor. Uh, it could have been over a minute and a half. Something like that. Yeah, like a minute and a half. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, recognize- that's- yeah, I know. It's, a, it's a such a short sounding amount of time, but a lot a lot happened in that minute and a half. Just, and at, at a close range. That was the biggest thing, yeah. you know. Uh, you can have a, a very brief glimpse of something at close range and get a very good uh, perception of what what it, you're looking at. Oh, absolutely. In, at least in circumstances. Your eyes are glued on this thing. I mean, your your eyes are glued on this thing. I mean, this is your your focus. I mean, this is what you're looking at, and you're t- taking it all in. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, well, at I mean, about a approximately, yeah. approximately 150 feet. My eyes were really glued on it, but before that, I was not so much because I just assumed it was the neighbor. But up, up after 150 feet, I noticed there was odd uh, angular and limb proportion differences that were very clear, and then my eyes were glued on it because up to that point, I was actually looking for deer around the field or anything spooked up by him or me. But at 150 feet. Uh, I walked about 30 more feet and dead stopped, realizing that he wa- that that wasn't a neighbor guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Then I watched it. It probably took probably from the point that of realizing it one, at stopping at 120 feet, probably took the thing another 10 to 11 seconds, something like that. Just it's just over 10 seconds. I'll go with that. Clear the tree line, step out into sight. Probably between five and six seconds. Or five and five and ten seconds, I'll say. Yeah, between five and ten seconds of it looking around, like up and down at the trail outward, and then noticing me, and then the entire uh, length of time that it um, stared at me, and then the time that it moved off. It took this thing about 
three seconds to get from the edge of the trail where I could get a good, good look at it to where I could only see uh, its left shoulder, the shoulder blade, primarily its left side, uh, back of its head, side of its profile, and its, its uh, upper back as it kind of veered off to the north, uh, east, away from me. But I could see every muscle on the thing. And I'm quite familiar with anatomy uh, between human beings and most of the primates. Uh, you could see uh, the striated uh, forearm muscle when it was holding the fawn. From the weight being on the arm, you could see the bicep. I could see the uh, uh, trapezius muscle uh, to the connection point on the neck. You could see the larger neck muscle area. Uh, you could see the main uh, two large supporting uh, muscle and a t uh, tendon attachment points that started the base of the skull toward the spine, the back end of the um, I mean, um, neck vertebrae, all the way down toward the collarbone. I could see that muscle on the neck. Uh, I could see the tricep, very prominently the tricep, cast its own shadow into so large and developed. Uh, I could see the knob on the end of its... Um, uh, forearm toward the back. I could see like all the striations, like I said, the little itty bitty. Like if you ever look at a rock climber on a rock climbing magazine uh, and they're gripping something, they're putting all their weight. You look at their forearm, you'll see those separated lines crossing the um, yeah uh, the, the the rear end of the forearm, right where the right. connective muscles between the bicep and the radius are. Um, you could see all of those defined lines. So they were very developed muscles. The thing looked like you would not want to shake its hand. It would break break your hand. Yeah. Um, so you got the – I mean, I'm getting the impression that you were looking at a a male Sasquatch. I mean, you didn't see anything about breast or anything like No, very, very clearly this thing had large pectoral muscles, very well developed. Uh, as a matter of fact, a good comparison for its build would be if you've ever looked at some of the Olympic uh, sprinters um, – on uh, like competitive uh, photography shoots and ads, uh, just completely chiseled and angular muscles. Very different from like someone who's just a weightlifter and somebody who's uh, got an angular developed build, like a gymnast. Gymnasts have that type of build, and so do UFC fighters and uh, Olympic sprinters. Just very lean and angular muscle development, uh, muscles bulging off from the frame in different directions, just very clearly. Uh, the abdominal structure, uh, I don't think it was pop-bellied, but the top was rounded outward like the bottom of the pectoral muscle was. Strong, well-developed core. Uh, it, it, it would have made any bodybuilder sincerely jealous. Um, <laughs> yeah, like the, I, I hear that a lot. See, you, could, you could see uh, the main uh, hip erector muscles that start at the base of the groin and wrap around the hip bone and go up toward the base of the oblique. You could see that muscle crowding over the top of the uh, the top of the hips. You could see that very clearly. Uh, the back muscles, just tremendous flared wing muscles off the base side of from where the deltoid begins and it flares down and toward the lower back. Just Intense, just very. It is the thing. Just looks like 
basically, if you wanted to give a good comparison, it could have been somewhere between Dwayne Johnson and somebody, some other, like, major, some of the best. Yeah, yeah, D- don't mess with me. Uh, I'm big and huge and strong, and I own the woods. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's just, it's, it's uh, I mean, that's reported. I mean, that's the, the muscles, you know, uh, the, the, just the, the whole, the figure as a whole just is, you, you look at it, and it just looks tremendously strong. I mean, just unbelievably strong uh that and that's reported did uh now did you get a feeling as to a height i mean how big was this thing i mean did you think it was an adult i mean looking back on it now was this thing more of an adult i mean you really don't have much to compare to but i mean uh, this thing sounds big structurally it's it's bone structure was adult but like a young adult, like there's a difference between when you look at a, a 45 year old man, very unlikely it is that he has the exact same frame he had when he was 20, you know, uh, in the older male figure, both on primates, uh, like other primates, like gorillas and chimps, the frame thickens out, the bone structure thickens out, the neck isn't at usually quite as long, um, like on, on, on humans, for instance, but this thing, it had a very young-looking frame, just very, very uh, in its prime, if you will. But it was probably on the order of, I want to say, six two to six three, possibly six four. I was very, I remember, I was a teenager. I was like fifteen years old at the time. Everything seems big to me at probably at that age, but probably three hundred and three hundred and what? 50 pounds, 360 pounds, not something your like that. Yeah, not my neighbor. Not my, not my uh, uh, 200 pound, five nine neighbor. No, it's it. It was much larger than him. Yeah. yeah what about the color? You know, the, what about the color of this thing? I mean, uh, did it match the surroundings? I mean, did 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 the color that you saw? And I want you to describe it a little bit and talk about it. But did it? Did the color make sense to you when you saw it, and and what color was it? Well, this is interesting. In the shade, I would have swore to you at first that whatever it was was jet, jet black. But then when it stepped into the sun, there was a a very large amount of the light that was casted off was a deep brown and almost reddish uh, tinge to it. After it hit the sun, just like if you look at, um, there's there's black cats and then there's black farm cats, like that are mixed. Their genetics are mixed with other different breeds and such. And mm-hmm. you know, at night they look black, or in the shade they look black. But when they step in the sun, you know, any transparency on the edge of their hair at all, and they look reddish brown. That was very similar to what this animal had as far as coloration, not hair patterning whatsoever, just the coloration. Um, when it hits sun, it turns more brown and reddish uh, in color. It looked like. What, what, was its hair matted? Was it nasty? Was it uh, looked like it was uh, maintained? I mean, what was and how long was the hair? Or you um, know, fur. Hair, I, you know, I, I always assume hair, um, <laughs> but some people describe more of a fur, even though they're referring to hair. But I would uh, assume that you're you're talking it's about not, hair. It's not a fur. It's not a fur whatsoever. Yeah. Fur is is like what you when you look at a cottontail rabbit that's fur 
when you look at a chimpanzee, and that's body hair. That is, the structurally, yes. it's slightly different. Um, it's a very different feel. The texture is different. Um, even the way the character is composed, as I understand, is a little bit different than what fur is. Um, but no, the, this thing it had hair. It wasn't. It was thick. It was like way thicker than human body hair. But it wasn't. It wasn't like a rabbit. It wasn't like um, quite like a German Shepherd or something like that. It was very stylized. Uh, it followed the flow of muscles on the body, the direction the hair did. Um, for instance, if you look at chimpanzees, the hair on the forearm flows downward and flares down off the bottom of the forearm and clips back, like kind of turns backwards toward the tip of the elbow, kind of flaring off the elbow a little bit. You could see that the kneecaps uh, didn't really have a lot of hair on them. They looked pretty bald, uh, callous even almost, I would say. Uh, you could see hair that was there, but it wasn't like at nearly as thick. You could see skin. Um, skin color was ash gray, straight up ash gray with dark pigmented, uh, darker pigmented like flakes on the skin in tones. Almost uh, not quite like age spots, but smaller on the face, uh, hands, and. Uh, like parts of the body where there was thinner hair, it looked like there was some slight pigmentation differences. Um, if I were to estimate his age, looking at him, uh, he was probably, he looked like an 18, 19-year-old. And I know that's basing on human years, but like frame developmental-wise, that young adult, you know. Um, in in his prime. Thing. Yeah, in its yeah. prime, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. very, very well, the- athletic. Yeah, various like, but continuing on with the hair a little bit. Now, you mentioned the knees. Uh, what about? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, the hands, the feet, and the hair around the face. So, uh, you know, was there? You know, describe that a little bit. Or one part that particularly stands out is that there was a thinness around the neck, right around where uh, the muscle that was visible on the neck that connects from the base of the skull, where the vertebrae go up into the bottom of the skull. That there's a there's the two main erector muscles that run from the collarbone, wrap around your trachea, past your Adam's apple, and up behind your ear. Uh, there was a thinness of hair uh, right at the base there, uh, at the top of the chest, very slightly, um, and up behind toward the ear, looked like very slightly, like underneath the jaw, just slightly under the jaw. There was a thinness of hair. Um, it was thin around the lips. There was hair. I want to say that it looked like there was hair crowding, like, up around, okay, the temple area. On, look, like, on a human being, the temple is usually mostly exposed on people. Uh, the hair crowded close to the temple, up to the edge of the eye, but not all the way up. Um, it was about an inch and a half down almost to the brow. And again, maybe my measurement's off based on skull size and trying to measure it, but if you, on a human being, it would be, like, an inch and a half. Most of the forehead had hair descending down. Uh, slight widow's peak toward the nasal structure, downward. Um, the hair flared up under the cheekbone, uh, wrapped up toward the edge of the nose, and then receded back around where the facial creases would, were starting on its face. 
and then wrapped around the mouth, under the chin, and again peaked upward toward the bottom of the lip, and then kind of peaked down and around. I, I did a, a sketch or two a while back kind of depicting the type of uh, hair patterning that I was uh, observing on the, on the face. Uh, yeah. But it was completely bald of hair underneath the eyes, uh, over the front of the cheekbones, like toward the nose. Uh, bald. The upper lip looked bald at the distance I was at, but it may in fact not have been. It just might have been so thin compared to the rest of it, and I wasn't able to see. I don't know. But it looked like there were facial creases. There was at least three or four lines of deep facial creases that wrapped around the corner of the mouth from the top of the nose, like the hood of the nose. It wrapped from the base of the nostrils all the way down around the corners of the mouth. Um, mm-hmm. The hairline kind of followed suit. Um, well, I want to I want to talk more about the facial features and whatnot. I got a lot of questions here, um, and I know most of them, but for the audience. But I did. did I don't think you mentioned the length of the hair. It sounds like it wasn't super long. No, it wasn't super long. It was between three and four inches, most of it, uh, possibly four and a half inches at the longest parts, maybe off the top of the head toward the rear, the base of the skull, uh, maybe into the inner back. It was a little bit thicker, like following the spine down. Uh, it was thicker in the pelvic and um, uh, genitalia area, obviously, which I was able to see the genitalia. Uh, as well. Oh. It is obvious, like, again, obviously male, completely obviously a male. Um, just, again, by musculature alone, without seeing anything else, I just told you it was male. Um, <clears throat> the muscle in the legs also, I will just for note, just the incredible power just at looking at the legs. The legs of this thing look like, on the quad, like, it looked like a big rectangular, like, knot on top right down to the kneecap, it bowed inward toward the knees and then flared out again as you approached going over the peak of the uh, uh, calf muscle, which again looked like a giant, it looked huge. It just looked a huge rectangular boxy shaped muscle hanging off the, from behind the front of the tibia. Just, yeah. I mean, uh, well, people yeah. are going to ask because you mentioned it. People are going to ask, about the genitalia area. I mean, you obviously saw that this was a, a male, uh, more than just the, the, the uh, muscular uh, extremities, the uh, muscular aspect to this thing. Um, without being too, uh, you know, uh, getting into too many, uh, I guess, details and whatnot. But, I mean, you saw the genitalia. Um, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, you know, if you're looking at, you know, great apes, uh, you know, grills and stuff, you know. So, I mean, th- this thing had, I mean, you can, you could at the time make out the genitalia, correct? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, not completely detailed. A lot of it was enveloped in hair, but there, it was clearly there was an extremity there. There was a member. Okay. Um, there, it was also, I will note, it was dark in coloration. Very obviously, just like the skin. I don't remember if it was slightly darker. Let's just say that that wasn't my focus. <laughs> just <laughs> that it was there. Um, it was proportionally, uh, toward, to, to its frame. It didn't look like, I know in some of the greater apes, it looks, uh, smaller proportionally to their body and muscle mass. Right. uh, Not, not the case in, uh, apparently male Sasquatch. 
of the northeastern region. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 uh, it's one of those things that um, there have been reports of people seeing, you know, the genitalia area of of male sasquatches, and it's described differently. But um, <clears throat> you know, uh, there's a lot that goes into what you're looking at, and so. You know, is, was yeah. the creature excited? Uh, was it, uh, you know, I mean, what's going on there? So, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I just I, yeah. it had to be uh, it had to be uh, said and talked about a little bit. But I really, I'm, yeah. I know uh, the viewers going to be interested in this. Really want to hear you describe uh, the facial features uh, a little bit more specifically. Like, uh, did you see yeah. ears? Uh, the nose? Was it? You mentioned hooded earlier. Was it hooded? Was it flat? Um, and was, and the eyes, the color of the eyes. I mean, can you describe the, the head? Describe the head. Okay, I can I can tell you right now that the head, um, the individual I saw, uh, was very slightly conical toward the back, sloping forehead back to a rear peak in the skull, which, if you think about it, makes sense with the cheekbone structure behind and where the ascending radii of the jaw, the main attachment muscles wrap up and under the flared cheekbones and then attach at the base of the skull on a lot of the greater, greater apes toward the back of the crest. Again, this thing's jaw was extremely developed. The jaw muscle was very strong. It, it wasn't like looking at a gorilla skull type thick, but it was much thicker than uh, typical human and so I would assume that the muscle wrapped farther up onto the head and uh, toward the ba- base of the skull in the back, and therefore adding to that crest, peak, or whatever you want to call it. Um, also, the flow of the hair kind of probably helps. It was a little bit longer off the base of the head, uh, or I mean from the top of the head wrapping backward over the back of the head, but the head looked slightly peaked in the back uh, with a lot of muscle built up to it. Um, the nose was hooded um i don't want to say it was, it was not flat whatsoever it has a, a side profile but tilted very also slightly upward and flared nostrils very very wide nostrils to take in a lot of air obviously um the the is they were able to move that facial structure it moved it moved all, i remember when it came from surprise seeing how flared they were just clearing them outward, um, and then scrunching up its face, I could see that structure change. But um, very structurally in the face, it looked like a older Mongolian man is, as far as, like, facial structure. Just very high and tight cheekbones, um, deep eye crevices, a lot of a lot, almost squinted eyes appearance, a heavy furrowed brow, but again with that Neanderthal-type base skull thickened structure just very imagine that whole facial construction but thickened and the skin color yeah you know it's funny because what what you're describing reminds me of the patterson gimlin film when i'm looking at patty that the high cheekbones and stuff and and uh um of course you know uh it's it's an old film um but when i look at patty uh, i i kind of see what you're describing in my head a little bit. You know, of course, we're yeah. talking about a male Sasquatch, but it just reminds yeah, the, me of will, the Patterson-Gimlin film. Actually, the, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film subject 
would appear to be a, a middle-aged female, like comparably in my head, to what is what I saw, which is a young male. Uh, but uh, one of the main striking differences, again, for for me, was just the shoulder structure. Shoulders, torso structure of the male is very contrasted compared to the wider hips of, like, Patty, for instance. This had a tapered yeah. in pelvis, which is unusual if you think about most of the primates and more archaic uh, human uh, branches. Uh, they had wider pelvis. This this may in fact be wide, but not wide for its overall structure. The upper body was very developed and clearly wider than the um, hip and buttock region, just very clearly, much narrower than the shoulders and such. Yeah. So the the eyes. This thing's looking at you. You got a clear. You guys locked eyes. Were the eyes? Uh, I mean, how how big would you? I mean, were these big eyes? Were they uh, deep setted into the skull or into the face? They were. And uh, color. What was the color? Okay. I will say that at four thirty in the afternoon, the sun is coming in from the back. Like the sun is behind me, shining onto the back of my head and over me and onto this thing. There's a lot of shadow cast on onto the dark like where there ever there was shadow there was it was hard to look at what was in the shadow. I cannot tell you specifically what color the eyes were. I would assume okay. that they were either dark brown dark brown or something very dark because I could not in fact make out a real color. But if I were to guess uh and again if they were deep brown or 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 something like that. Um, if there was sclera uh, visible, yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Color, like when it was profiled to the side, and I saw it moving. Like I feel like again, as you're talking about a very minute detail, it, at enough of a distance, it would have been hard to read. But I right. feel like my impression is, if I think back just to a flash impression in my head of what it looked like. I pictured that there was a very small amount of sclera visible on the corners of the eyes, but not not like big eyes. Though I would imagine much. big eyes. I mean, I would imagine uh, having seen the eyes at you know 150 feet, they would have to be pretty large. Well, they they I'm sure they were, but again, he wasn't he wasn't an eight foot monster. He was just a big six three or whatever. But um, mm. and he was squinting because he when he looked direct when he was to the side, he wasn't squinting as hard. But when he looked right at me, he was looking into the sun pretty much. So he was squinting it possibly very very heavily. And that may have also affected to how much I was able to view because, you know, the eyelids crowd down in their shadow and it was difficult to say. But, again, um, I would I would say that the eyes were not large compared to its head, but large in general because it, the whole thing was large. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and dark colors. Yeah. Well, but they weren't deep into the skull. So they were not super deep into the skull. The brow ridge furled out heavily, and the cheekbone crowded up around, but I don't think they were, like, inset. I don't think you could have, like, for instance, if you were handling the head of it, like, on a table or something, I don't think you could have, like, put your thumb inside the eye socket and gone upward at all with any cavity space between the eyelid and the, where the skin is. Yeah cups upward into the skull. I don't think there was any space uh, inside 
No, I don't think they were. I don't think it was in these games. Okay. Well, some of the other things that really interest me about uh, hearing uh, reports where people have actually got up close personal sighting are, are what well, we mentioned the nose. Um, what about the ears? I'll give you two questions here. What about the ears? Did you see ears? And was there, uh, what was the, I mean, I don't know if you can answer this. I don't know if you ever told me, but the, the uh, beside the ears, what was, was there, uh, what was like the, the, the gap between the nose and the mouth? Was it, uh, did it look like there was quite an extreme, oh, um, you're talking about the distance. distance wise, yes, the yeah. Base of the clip, the cleft in the nose. You cleft, uh, yeah. The, the t- yeah, and the, the, of the upper lip. It was upper slightly lip, yeah. lower, very slightly. Uh, I would not say heavily. I wouldn't say it was long like when you look at a gorilla. You got this huge sloping downward uh, lip structure goes all the way down to the thin lips, and then you have the whole protruding oral cavity and such. Nothing like that. There was, um, if you look at some aboriginal tribes, um, you know, just by happenstance, their their dental structure uh, is slightly more forward than than say Eastern European and um, such. Just just by okay. the way their skull is shaped, they're genetically different, so their skull is a different shape, um, and the oral cavity is slightly uh, forward. In the tooth structure, the te- uh, structure of the teeth and dental arrangements might be forward too. Um, on this thing was like that. Just it was slightly down, just a little bit hair longer than what a normal human being would have. Maybe a tenth to an eighth more downward than ours, um, and slightly forward. It, it looked like the looked like the teeth stuck forward very slightly um, outward but not like leaning at any degree. The uh, teeth are still straight up and down. It's just that the whole oral structure just looks built. Just like if you look at some people who've been in boxing long enough, um, they've taken a few hits to the face, uh, their oral structure thickens out after from calcification and gum swelling and stuff like that, just like that. Gotcha. Well, and, and the ears, uh, did you notice any ears? Um... You know, someone else asked me this like a year ago, and I told them that could make out there was a structure under some of the hair uh, where the ear okay. was. And it didn't look terribly large. It, looked, it wasn't like a chimpanzee where you have big flared ears. That's just ridiculous. The ears were, if the ears that I, I was seeing when it was looking at me, I couldn't see tips of the ears. So they were laying pretty flat. And the hair was covering most of them. Um, same color as the face, light, uh, uh, the light ash gray. Um, but they were under mostly hair. But I could see there was a structure there, like when it was profiled, I was looking up and down at the quad, tra- quad track. I could see that there was a structure under the hair. Um, so there was yeah. definitely ears, and they were visible, but it wasn't like looking at the whole thing exposed outward from the hair. Um I guess he just didn't comb his hair that day. <laughs> I don't know how you'd <laughs> want to put that. But, uh, yeah, right. it, it was – they were laying pretty flat to the head. They're pretty pretty contoured to the skull. You have this this individual, this Sasquatch out there, and, you know, uh, what, I mean, what was 
the weather like that day? I'm curious as to what the weather was like that day and the wind direction. Do you think this thing uh, picked up? Um, it, it just it just locked eye it locked eyes with you because it, it it just saw you, or did it? Do you think it smelt you, or just uh, knew someone was in the area? I mean, I mean, that is do you know? Thing, and I, yeah, I'd been thinking about that very heavily. The reason I was heading up the trail that way is that normally the wind is coming in from the west, particularly the southwest, normally. But I decided, being I was scouting for deer, you can't scout for deer with a bad wind. You can't. You will lose. You will not find deer. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Um, so I went out that day because we had an unusual wind pattern uh, for the area. It was coming from, the wind was coming from the north. It was swirling a bit off the cleft of the hill, toward the road near my property, but I don't know to what degree. I don't remember. I wasn't exactly wetting my finger and testing the air as that was happening, but my my guess based on the reasoning I was operating under when I was going out in the first place is that the wind was toward my face slightly from the north. So I think the wind was coming from the direction of the creature toward me possibly why it did not notice me. Maybe it, if they can smell humans, if, if their sense of smell is that sensitive, um, I think the wind was in my favor that day. Um, right. And I, I, right. feel, I feel as though it just eyeballed me, like like just saw me at the corner of its eye and just finally just got a lock on me. Because before that, he had no clue that I was even there. No clue. I'm certain of that. Like approaching the trail, this thing had zero clue I was there. Yeah, I didn't hear you, <clears throat> didn't smell you. Uh you, you you crept up and uh you know, obviously <clears throat> pardon me, moving very stealthily. I mean, you weren't like uh tromping through the woods. <laughs> no, I was deliberately trying to be quiet to approach deer in the bedding area near this rock pile. Oh, something that should be noted specifically, the area that this creature was coming from was toward three large rock piles. This area I knew the fawn and the does were bedding near. That's why I was going out to see how frequently it was being used, count how many beds, get in there, how many deer, find grazing spots, fresh scat. The unusual thing is, upon looking at the dead fawn after we'd come back with the gun and my family, the skull was crushed inward, straight from the skull cap, directly over the eye sockets of the fawn. Completely crushed in. It looked like a bludgered blow, like one strike. Uh, like the, you could push your finger. The skin was still there. There was a single laceration, and you could push your finger physically on the top of the forehead of the fawn and push right down into the brain case. Yeah. Well, the this area, this area. I mean, you know, uh, you know, does will leave their fawns, you know, in these these areas in the tall grass, you know, and, and they'll just. You That's know, what's between the, the rock piles with tall grass. Yeah, and, 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 and the does will, or the fawns, sorry, will kind of just hunker down, lay there, uh, I would exactly. imagine. That's the point of their spottedness, yeah. is to blend into grass. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it would be a great. Walk on the fawns there. I mean, uh, you know, well, I mean, can you describe the this area, the train a little bit? I mean, why would Sasquatch be there? Obviously, it, it, it had uh, taken a fawn. But, be, you know, yeah, what's beyond the area? I mean, where, where did this thing come from? 
what are the, the is, is there a tremendous amount of water sources, mountains, hills? I mean, yeah. you got a rock pile. I've heard rock pile and and, and tall grass and in this. You know, I I got a little bit in idea in my head, but um, we, we are. Can you describe this whole area? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were we're right on the nose. What we call, if you look at Michigan on the map, basically hold your hand up at the mitten, right? Right about your knuckles area, central Michigan, the middle knuckle on your hand, that would be right mid-Michigan. That's right where I'm at. The entire, from the, like the knuckle up on your hand all the way up to the tip of Michigan is mostly coniferous forest mix, slightly different elevational changes, more river systems, lakes, and swamps. The southern half of Michigan is primarily agricultural. It's um, an in, in old industrial field area further down the state. But what's interesting is this is the place where you have large agricultural fields smashing smack into river systems veined out with coniferous forest and state forestry area. This is where food, water, and cover all converge uh, very heavily. Like the, the three main points you need are right there. That is where I live. Like you drive three miles from my house, there's a highway. You cross the road of that highway, and you can walk in the woods for 15 miles straight through forest, pretty much, all the way north toward, going upward towards Houghton Lake. Wow. So it's, yeah, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like a, if, if I was a Sasquatch, this would be an area I'd be in, uh, you know, to, uh, I mean, you got food, water, and an area where you can actually hide in, you know, apparently, you know, this, this Sasquatch was caught off guard or whatever. Um, yeah. But I hear that from a lot, a lot of times from hunters, you know, so that doesn't surprise me. In Michigan, in the data comp- uh, composition map that I was doing, both in reports and in the forest composition map, there was correlations I was finding. Um, one, the primary witness was either deer hunting or trapping along a very heavily forested waterway that was not thick enough to be, like, severely fished, but thick, uh, but um, really tucked into the forest and off the beaten path. Like, you had to really work to get in there. Um, also, they were within one mile of a large cedar swamp bog, which, if you think about it, this is high-acid content soil. This is where... Blueberries grow, raspberries grow, blackberries grow. All primary large omnivore-based diets converge at points like this. It's not a coincidence. It's data. And the interesting part about that, if you map it out, I live on a seven-acre plot of land, five acres of which is purely blackberries, fringed upon my grandma's property, which is a swamp system which veins off of the Muskegon River. So... It's it's not a guessing game as to how and why this this entire uh, event even happens. We are at the point where right. food meets heavy cover that is both suitable for the wintertime because cedar bogs hunters will not enter deeply into cedar bogs. There's muck, uh, what we what Michigan people call uh, quicksand. It's not really quicksand; it's muck, but it goes over waist high and over your head in some places. Um, it's high acid content. It breaks down bones and calcium and all vegetation super quickly. And it's very rich in nutrients after it breaks all those things down. And the bacteria actually keep it warm enough that it never really freezes to the bottom. It stays exposed water. Like I, it could be 
20 below zero outside, and there's a thin cap of ice over the top, and I could punch through it and get water. Um, and they're also warmer. Because the heat is pinned down by these bogs, these large cedar tracks, cedar swamp bog tracks, the heat is pinned under all the coniferous forest. It can't go anywhere. The wind can't drive it out like it does in a barren, empty, deciduous forest in the wintertime. You know, leafless trees, the wind is driving, you freeze. This is why you'll hear old hunters all the time harp that the best hunting spots in November are along the cedar bogs because they call them there. They call the deer that hide in the cedar bogs there uh, swamp donkeys. It's it's an old term, um, but it's, this is what the wise old bucks do to avoid hunters and predators. And the Sasquatch would know this. They would know based on the hunting season that why would you leave? For instance, why would you leave your house, i.e. the cedar bog if your food or your refrigerator is migrating toward you. This is why wintertime sightings almost completely disappear in Michigan in the wintertime because I don't think they're moving. And again, the data from the summertime correlates with this because it expands. If you can take a map of Michigan and plot the sightings from like April and May and look at them, like, make a little gif of April, May, June, July, and August, and you will find that they're all the way around large cedar bogs and river systems, and they go outward. Like, you push May, they go a quarter mile, sightings start popping up around the cedar bog. Summertime, like June and July, they're about a mile outside of the cedar bog. Um, and then right around August, they're between three and five miles outward from the cedar bog, following uh, creek veins, small rivers, and forested uh, fingers that come outward or along elevational changes. Um, and then you start looking toward October, November, or the colder months, the level goes down and the deer start going back toward those places. The sightings, again, and the vocalization reports, again, start going back toward, like, shrinking. The range starts shrinking of reports back toward the cedar box and the river system. So there's yeah, see, that's very interesting that because that shows patterns, predictability, and I would assume, uh, living in Michigan, having, you know, your knowledge and, and, and the knowledge of other hunters and whatnot, that um, if you're looking for Sasquatch or interested in the subject, you know, you can look at some of these patterns of predictability with, uh, you know, deer and other, you know, known animals. I mean, there, there there's patterns here. There's predictability. That's very well, interesting yeah, and very pertinent. Well, any time that you have biology operating underneath normal physics, I mean, you know, they're animals. They get hungry. They need sleep. They need water. They need cover. They're going to need all the same exact things. Um, you can use a very, yeah. very similar data map between a bear and an and for a Bigfoot. It's, it's not rocket yeah. science to figure out the basic pattern. To, in fact, get to the technical aspect of getting within, you know, good uh, thermal video distance, that, that's debatable. Um, but I've been close a couple of times, and using my own data, uh, I've managed to find locate four different locations in Michigan on my own, using my data, that have come up with very, very positive results for um, what is reported to be Sasquatch activity. Tracks, audio, visuals, um, and other other behaviors and findings like handprints on yeah. windows uh, that are like 12 inches by 10 inches, um, 
things like that, just tons of data and that is correlating to these factors, which I first observed in, at my, near my home. Because the activity continued for several years around my home. And I'm, I'm not, not to make the complete assumption, it was the same one, but he, the, the one that always showed up sounded about the same, sounded young, um, always the same size tracks. Um, one time I found a different size track, young, very young one, very small. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and, and multiple interactions with the the one that was hanging around uh, throughout the years. There were nights you could go out in my backyard and you could yell something and the thing would yell back. And then you'd yell again and it'd yell back. Or rocks would get thrown into the yard. Um, remember one time, uh, deer hunting one year, I was hearing trees getting shaken so hard that leaves were falling off. I could see the top of one of the trees uh, over my tree stand at about 6.30 in the morning was being waved around as if it was like someone was waving a flag and a piece of PVC. It was like waving around ridiculously and there was grunting and screaming and knocking going on. All But again, th- there was repeated interaction throughout years. My neighbors had experiences with giant people on their property that were messing with things that they, they were calling giant people. Um, uh, one of my neighbors said that there was a big man, for instance, a little mini apple orchard, like eight or nine major trees. And one day he said he saw a man that his head was coming up to the bottom of the limb early, early in the morning outside picking apples off of his tree. And I, he said the funny part is he stands under that apple tree and he can't touch the branch that its head came to. So. Yeah, it sounds like there's a, a history. sounds like there's a, there, well, a history in this area of ongoing yeah. activity. You know, uh, um, Seth Breedlove, uh, you know, Small Town Monsters, you know, does these, these, um, these fantastic uh, documentaries and movies on, on stories like this. And this is exactly what it reminds me of where you just got a, a period of time in some of these remote areas where, where Sasquatch seems to hunker down and, and kind of bother the neighbors and bother individuals and, and hang around. And nobody really knows why they do it. Eventually, it dissipates. But there's like this period of time where they're there and they're they're making themselves known. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't heard of anything really. Re- I mean, this is like probably the most recent sort of event. Uh, you know, that I've heard of. I mean, there's been a few others, I guess. Uh, but this, with your sighting and you know, with your neighbors, uh, you know, claiming to see stuff and hear stuff and calling it the big man. I mean, this, this is pretty, uh, pretty dang interesting. I, but I want to shift gears. I mean, not even shift gears a little bit. I want to get back to uh, a little bit about your personal experience this, this, uh, with your first sighting, uh, or your, your initial sighting, sorry, where, um, you know, you, you, you saw this thing, your heart's beating through your head. You could, you could hear your, you know, the blood pumping and everything else. Um, you know, back in 2011, uh, in August, up here in Oregon, I had an encounter. And I remember uh, in my tent, I remember being in my tent where I felt, and I know we talked about this before, Nathaniel, but I remember laying in my tent feeling paralyzed. Uh, I could hear my heart beating, uh, blood was pumping in my ears. I mean, just, it was just, it was unreal how, um, and I was, I was freaked out. I was freaked out. But, uh, you know, uh, eventually I came to, 
and I, I started rationalizing stuff, like I'm still alive, nothing's hurt me, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I never felt like um, what people describe as, you know, impersound, being zapped or sizzled, as the Bigfoot community calls it. Oh, but okay. it, it doesn't sound like you were zapped or sizzled or impersound. Was, you, just, you were just afraid. You were just afraid. You were yeah. frozen with fear. And, and fear is I, natural. I, I, I was fearful. I mean, is that how you felt? Yeah. Well, the fear probably had a very heavy hand in it, but there is uh, to, to causing that physiological response. But do I necessarily think that that is the entire reason that people think they're being zapped? Not entirely. No. A good part of what no, I think no. that is I agree. is there is um, data among other animals and, and human being interactions showing that there's pheromonal reactions. So if you think about it, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, a large predator, for instance, is going to be downwind of its prey, so its prey can't smell it, right? Well, think of that moment of when you're, like, playing and, uh, as a young kid, and you're playing, like, water balloon fights, airsoft, whatever, paintball, and, you know, that you're, someone finally comes into view and you're about ready to get them and your heart starts racing, your adrenaline's pumping, you start sweating, uh, by the end of the game, you smell like you've played football for 12 hours. I think a part, large part of it is that there is a pheromonal response by these things coming into your camp. They have a body odor, and we might have an instinctual reaction. Uh, that we, For instance, even if I can't smell a Bigfoot, um, I may in fact have a pheromonal reaction to the animal's presence if it just simply, I don't know, wafts up under my tent flap and the animal's walking around my camp and my body has a response where I feel like I'm paralyzed, I'm locked up. Um, this is what happens to deer that you get too close to. Um, you know, you get too close and they just lock up for a few, for about a minute, and then you get super, super close and they finally bolt. But they, like, lock up. Like, I think so, humans have a similar, possibly have a similar reaction that I that it could be pre- caused by a pheromonal reaction from the animal being in your presence, and I think that hey, I would... totally, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not saying that uh, Sasquatch are not capable of some sort. Of, I mean, we obviously. I don't know. I, know. I just that was my yeah. thinking as to what. Yeah, no, 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 it's fantastic, and I, I agree with you. Uh, so. But you know, I mean, there's no animal like, out yeah, there the that you. The right. wind was um, uh, a good wind for me, so that may have been why I may not, at least in theory may not have had such a response as being that per se. Right. I mean I just think I think the, the word infrasound gets tossed around too freely, especially when there's no sighting. It's just, you know, somebody feels paralyzed, um or you know, and then it's reported you know, here and there, but I the the yeah. pheromones, you know, I mean I, I'm a I truly believe that is a big portion of it as well as just you know when you encounter something unknown you know it's uh, as a hunter as a hiker that it's something you've never experienced before whether you see something or not uh the fear yeah. just could adrenaline rush uh you know it's amazing what it does to the human body it's really amazing yeah i mean no, and so i think a lot of times it can be explained as just fear and adrenaline uh, I'm not saying Sasquatch yeah. is not capable of it, but I think uh, nine times out of ten, if it's a legitimate encounter, you're dealing with either pheromones, like you mentioned, 
or just a complete fear uh, of of seeing something or uh, you know encountering something unknown. Yeah. Actually, it's, there's a very interesting correlation I personally made about something that may or may not be related to this. Um, I took my uh, girlfriend and my parents out with me uh, to Oregon for a BFRO expedition here last year. Uh, or this year, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was this summer. Shoot, it was July. <laughs> Time is flying. Um, and we were on a night hike. I believe it was the last night. Me and my mom and my dad, I had them rear playing follow the leader uh, maneuver. Um, I had two people lagging, my parents, and they were by themselves listening behind us, and we were in the front, me and my girlfriend, Holly. Um, and we got up the hill, and I could hear something paralleling, finally something up on the ridge after we'd been singing and doing a couple hand claps and stomping, kicking some rocks off of a ledge, you know, just being obnoxious in the environment pretty much or possibly interesting depending on what Sasquatch you are or person. Um, and the interesting thing was we got up to one point and the wind started clipping over the top of this ridge and flowing down the hill. Well, not wind. It was a breeze, very, very slight breeze. But it was enough to feel it on your face. The air pressure was changing. And out of nowhere, I could hear something moving. And then right in the same moment, I'm noticing something moving in our direction. About 30 seconds later, um, my mom radioed me for about 100 yards down the hill behind us saying she was feeling ill, feeling a little sick and not wanting to hike anymore and wanting to stop. She just wasn't feeling great. Um, at the time I chalked it up to, she just wasn't up for hiking at the moment. Um, but then all of a sudden, uh, about five minutes passed because we're stopped and listening to this thing, and I, uh, I asked my girlfriend to just sing a couple of soft words out and see what would happen and uh, just walk around with me in circles. We had to sit down. We put our head down in our laps. Um, we started tossing little pebbles down the road a little bit. We had my parents stop and do the same thing. Um, and next thing you know, the sound comes right up to the edge of the road, like right up, like maybe 40 feet off the shoulder and up on this ledge. Probably It's probably 20 feet up above us. And we could hear something pacing up in there. And all of a sudden, uh, my girlfriend kind of stands up and comes over to me and says that she's not feeling good either and that she's feeling kind of sick. Um, she was having an unusual response. She felt shaky. Um, and she wasn't afraid. I mean, we didn't know what it was. I mean, we'd heard other things moving all night, rabbits and uh, critters. But this sounded different. But... In particular, she, my mom and her both got sick at approximately the same time, feeling sick and ill and kind of nervous um, at the same time for this one chance, this one uh, particular noisemaker in the woods. Um, so we walked a little bit farther, and then we walked back after doing a couple of knocks. We went to bed um, at approximately midnight, like 12, 12 or something like that, and at 4... Four, I want to say 4.16 to 4.26 in the morning or something like that started knocking like crazy, just completely destroying the piece of wood that it was hitting on the tree. Just bam, 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 pause, and there was bam, 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 five or six more. Um, and I woke up in the morning, and I assumed it was one of our teams back on the other camp and walked up the road and decided to kind of rudely do a bunch of knocks right outside of our camp across the road. 
probably 120 yards away. And I went back to camp that morning, as, uh, and we found out from the expedition leader, uh, Cindy, that no team left camp that night whatsoever to come up our direction after midnight or to four in the morning. And so so we went out the next morning in search of where the animal could have been or whatever it was could have been knocking from and found no evidence of where people had broke the road or fresh blueprints going off or anybody had done anything, nothing like that. So coincidentally, something showed up approximately four in the morning and was just knocking like crazy for about a minute straight. Um, again, in accordance with that same exact uh, experience that we had earlier in the night, too. So I don't know. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, it's, it's that, very... My, my mom Sorry, told, me, uh... told me about it the next morning. She She's the one who's worried. Did you go out of your tent at 4 in the morning and give it a final shot and try wood knocking last night? And I said, no, but you heard that, too? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> she That was the first wood knock my mom had gotten here. Um, that could have possibly been Sasquatch-related in uh, over 20 years. Wow. So, well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah um, that's profound uh, and very interesting. Um, you know, uh, to backtrack a little bit, uh, to give the audience a little bit, uh, no, you know, a little knowledge on, on your background, what got you, I mean, were you interested in Sasquatch before you had your initial encounter? Uh, did you hear of any um, any stories or anything in the area that you lived in at the time uh, in Michigan? Uh, you know, what got you interested in this subject? Because uh, I, I mean, I want to I want to touch upon something that happened to you um, up here in uh, or up there in Washington um, with Shelley Cummington. I want to touch upon that, but. What, what okay, got you yeah, initially? I mean, was there any? Uh, what was your initial thoughts on Sasquatch before uh, oh, you before had your encounter? My mom told me that when she was younger, when she told me this, like when I was eight or nine, that she saw a Bigfoot. Just uh, very matter of factly, when she was a teenager in the gravel pit uh, across the road from my grandma's house, which is approximately one to like one and a half miles from my house now, possibly by like on the map. Um, toward the west and slightly south. She, my, my grandmother owned the same property for a long time, and my mom was given the piece of property by my grandmother. Um, so we put a house there, and that's where I grew up. It's next door to my grandma, pretty much. That's why we have our properties adjoined and everything. Um, so she had an experience when she was like 16, 17, and a visual experience with what she said looked like a Bigfoot, just a big, really tall, like an eight-foot-tall, uh, long-armed man thing that was all dark-colored. She said it was probably 100 yards away, and it just crossed the two-track in popple, in a load of cut popple, um, and it just was moving them over, like moving through them. It stepped. Oh, she remembered it stepping over a large fallen oak that was across the path. She said, that oak they'd crossed so many times before, like to go to the gravel pit across the trail, you know, you have to climb over it. The animal just stepped over it. Didn't put its hand on it and step, you know, like over it one foot and then the other. No, like with leading its leg, it just stepped over it and walked, kept walking like as if there was nothing there. 
Um, and her cousin, she tried to keep her cousin from seeing it, so she really quickly, like, turned him to the side while still watching it and told him to look over to the right, whispered for him to be quiet and to look over to the right and that we had a game. He, he told, uh, she told my cousin to, that we were playing a game to keep him f- distracted from looking at it uh, and that it was to be who could be the most quiet and close their eyes and, or so, something like that, I believe. And it worked. He never saw it or he didn't freak out or start screaming and crying because she was afraid that this thing would double back if it hurt a kid crying and freaking out. So right then and there, uh, she turned around and walked them from the gravel pit back to Grandma's house and told my grandmother. <laughs> and so we had neighbors had, that, would, that would tell us you, all you the had time. You had a little bit of knowledge. Would, uh, I mean, you had a little bit of uh, an experience, I mean, as far as listening to your mother talk about Sasquatch. And yeah, uh, it, g- continue on. Yeah. When it would come on, like yeah. the really old one, I think it was like the Sasquatch uh, Meet Science or whatever. Yeah, she put that on. We were interested when we'd watch it, and she'd go, you know, I saw one a long time ago. They're real. And, you know, I blew my mother off. I told her that I didn't think it was real and that she was just telling me a story. But my mom's not a liar, see, and she was kind of offended when I told her I thought she was making up a story. And so here I am. It was like in 2009 after my sighting, here I am apologizing to my mother for basically calling her a liar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not believing her. And right. then I think back to my grandmother and my, my aunt, who also grew up, and her college friend said that they would go camping and they would hear someone or something drumming on trees with firewood at night around their campsite. They didn't know a thing about wood knocks or Bigfoot, nothing. Yeah, that's a relatively new term or idea um, yeah. that has come you know come out. But... Nathaniel, um, you know, uh, so after after your initial uh, encounter, I mean, uh, where did that leave you? I mean, it, it pretty much, uh, you hear people talk about, um, we've had people on the show that have said this, uh, that, that you either kind of hide it or or you feel like an obligation to do something about it or, or get more involved in the subject. After your initial encounter, I mean, I, I know where you're at now. I know, every, you know, that aspect of it. But, I mean, for the audience, I mean, wh- you had this encounter. I mean, where did that lead you? I mean, wh- what were your uh, thoughts at the time? I mean, uh, how did that launch you into where you're at now? Well, as a, as a kid, at the time of the experience, I was – mortified of being outside (laughs) especially Mm -hmm. after dark um for about two and a half three months Uh, october rolled up and i forced myself i mean november rolled up and i forced myself to go out deer hunting but my cousin went out with me at twilight and there were some mornings that i just didn't want to go out because i was so freaked out still but it was so bad that for the first two months i couldn't even go out at night to the refrigerator to get a glass of cold water because the kitchen was dark and we had a big sliding glass window. <laughs> and if I did go to the kitchen, I had to like sneak my hand around the corner and turn the light on first and kind of like look, glance at the window to make sure there was nothing there. And 
open the fridge facing the window and then really quick turn my head just long enough to grab the pitcher and get out. Like, that's how bad it was. I was paranoid of windows and the dark. Uh, I would not feed the animals outside at night. I would not go out to the shed to get something out of the freezer for my mom. I would make somebody else go do it. Um, My bunk bed used to be against, uh, when my cousin was living with me at the time of the exciting, he's the one that went out and found the track. We were sharing a room. Uh, The bunk bed used to be against the window in my room. Like, like, so I could look out at night and eyeball any raccoons in the yard that I needed to uh, dispose of <laughs> from because they were trying to kill our cats. But anyways, yeah, the bunk bed used to be right there. Um, after that experience, that bunk bed went to the other side of the wall and wedged up as tight to the door as humanly possible, just wide enough that you could get through with your shoulders. And so that my thinking was that if that thing did try to come into my room and break through the window, like I remember my young brain thinking, well, if I pull the bunk bed over by the door as close as I can, I can jump off the bunk bed and pull the bunk bed as close to the door as possible and then close the door and it can't get in. Like that was my mentality. My entire mentality for maneuvering around my house for about two months was warped. Like I didn't feel safe in any room alone. Uh, Going into the restroom terrified me, so I would, like, we had finally put up curtains in the restroom so you couldn't see out the window and you couldn't see in, because I was terrified that this thing was looking in to the rooms of the house. Um, and then, of course, then I had to go in after that, watch Boggy Creek and terrify myself all over again. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's that scene in the, in the documentary or docudrama where it breaks in the window and grabs the guy in the bathroom and I relived that yeah. again about a year later. It was awful. But <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Terrifying. But yeah, um my dad didn't believe me for the longest time for about two months and then right around October, uh the thing started hanging around, making noises. When he'd get up to go to work, he'd hear it outside, uh knocking, whooping uh, sometimes rocks were getting thrown into the yard. Uh, stuff in our woods, we'd set up forts. We'd find our forts torn apart. Tree stands moved or bent off the tree. Bent, yes, physically bent off the tree. Um, metal stands. Um, we would find rocks that were half buried in the ground on the trail, pulled out of the ground, and moved about 100 yards up the trail and put right in the middle of the trail like this big quartz boulder that we used to have, I call it a boulder, it probably weighed 50 pounds, was pulled out of the ground one day. The beginning of the trail of our yard, it was laying in the middle of the trail. Uh, with half of it was dirty, half of it was clean. Because you could see where half of it was in the ground for so long. And it was laying on the trail. So I don't know if, I can't necessarily say that Bigfoot was responsible for it, but it was correlated with nights where we'd hear the thing out there. And then this type of thing would happen. And then there yeah, would be... Yeah, but you, you... All this stuff's going on. All this stuff's going on. Um, and, I mean, you you, uh, you didn't just, uh, you know, it didn't just end there. You eventually, uh, you know, as I know you, uh, Nathaniel, pursued the subject uh, to many extremes. Yeah. I mean, uh, moving... 
um, from Michigan uh, out to the Pacific Northwest, and and yeah. actually uh, having a lot happen out here. So I mean, there there's a lot going on there. Uh, I mean, what really propelled oh, you I, to I, move I to, to the Pacific well. Northwest? Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, that happened uh, 2013. No, what year was that? Shoot, was that just a year? It was a couple of years ago now. Jeez. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, I was I was partnered up uh, to a, be a part of a what was intended to be a major project, expeditionary project, out in the backcountry uh, for extended periods of time to do data collection uh, on a large well, wilderness area. We're talking about, with, and with, I, with, I'm going to mention it, the Falcon Project. That that's what you were yeah. intended to join up with, and and uh, partake yeah. in. Um, unfortunately, things I went sour. I was going to be but, one of the main yeah. uh, data collectors uh, on the Falcon Project for uh, nighttime thermal observation um, and data collection, as, as well as audio. They're responsible for audio, um, data collection, long-term devices, and such like that that I had designed. Um, I was going to implement those into the project to try to accumulate a fair amount of data, um, supportive data and evidence that that, that the Sasquatch were in the area um, and correlate it with, the vi- with video evidence as well. We were, we were working really hard to get a good body of information collected on the animals in an area where there was report to make a blueprint for other organizations and um, uh, groups to be able to follow for, to collect data to kind of track down where they live, what they do, how they do it. It was it was kind of an attempt at making a Jane Goodall drop in to the area, become part of the area and observe type of project. Um, but uh, it wasn't in the cards, unfortunately. Um, right. Funding uh, was lacking. Uh, apparently, after getting there, getting to where we were starting to grow roots down and uh, it, money wasn't coming down the pipe to get you know get us off the ground and running. So, at approximately a month, close to a month, it was like three and a half weeks. Yeah, it was three and a half weeks or so. Uh, we disbanded mainly from the project, but I did manage to make contacts with a couple really good researchers in the field while I was out there. Um, that I ended up doing ended up doing some studies with in between um, in other areas of Washington. Uh, Kirk Brandenburg being one of them. Uh, I worked with uh, uh, Cindy Cadell, part of the project. You know her well. (laughs) Um, Ended up meeting a couple other really fantastic individuals through there um, and ended up kind of joining another group and working in a couple of areas um, throughout Washington. from north to south, from the Olympics and on. Um, and I made connections from there into toward the Olympic project and um, other groups I work with. Um, I ended up meeting Shelly, I believe it was at Beachfoot <laughs> of the year. Yeah, uh, Shelly Cubbing in Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we scheduled to go out uh, with her and Kirk in a couple areas, and I really spent a lot of time with them. They're great people, both of them. Shelly is yeah. one of those people that's near and dear to my heart. She is 
tough Texan. She won't let you tell her no. If she wants to get, do something, she's going to do it, and you ain't going to stop her. Um, Kirk is just that ever-eager Bigfooter guy who doesn't doesn't have quit in him and uh, just always down for an adventure, just like, you want to go do this? I'm like, yeah. And then we were off. We were doing it. And we were out therming together till 5 in the morning for like a week straight. <laughs> it was, it, yeah. It's great to have people like that. Um, and between yeah. there yeah, and I mean, all over Shelley, Oregon. Yeah, Shelly yeah. Covington, Montana is awesome. I mean, amazing. Uh, she's part of the Lone yeah. Project. And so is Kurt Brandenburg. I mean, and Kurt Brandenburg is um, – just an amazing individual, very, you know, I mean, both Shelly and Kirk are very level-headed, very skeptical of what they may encounter and what's being shared out there. I mean, I love them to death. Uh, They're two of my favorite people in the world when it comes to researching this subject. Uh, And that's why uh, I want to lead into what transpired in Washington you know, you were you were uh, up in Washington with with those two individuals and others, and I was fortunate yeah. to, I was very fortunate to uh, catch the tail end of it. I made it up there late, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I did have, uh, I did hear some stuff, and I did uh, my buddy Larry Turner and I did find a, a, an impression that was really, really I find, good, uh, really good impression very after compelling. the fact. Very compelling and very interesting, and, and, and it, it, it uh, filed into uh, and perpetuated, uh, you know, what you guys had, had experienced. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you're up here in Oregon, or Washington, excuse me. I live in Oregon. Yeah. But uh, we, yeah. we traveled up to um, the Mount Rainier area, and uh, you guys, that's where you guys were camping and, and doing your research yeah. at. And you guys had quite the experience and a sighting. Um, uh, but yes, it, it's so amazing to me because of how it was categorized or how it was um, uh, taken down. Uh, I mean, Shelley really – How it was documented. How it was recorded, Both exactly. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I will, I'll, I'll, go, I'll explain that in detail. Um, on our first day there, uh, me, Shelley, and Kirk arrived into the area and rolled up in camp midday. It was kind of quiet. Um, not a whole lot going on. It's really dusty in the area, just really dry. Um, so we were like just kind of getting settled in and setting up camp. Uh, evening approach, we did a short therm walk um, and some put up some audio recorders. A um, few distant was sounded like knocks coming off of a ridge, high ridge line, about a, I want to say half a mile to the east of our camp. Um, so we continued to kind of route this road down and around. And this area had a history, excellent history of reports and ongoing that ranged all the way back into the, I believe, 80s. Um, good recorded history. Um, and we we heard things moving around. And then uh, uh, we also had... Uh, one of Shelly's friends, Cliff, there, another Cliff, uh, what's his name? Uh, Cliff something. Um, but, yeah, he, he was Cliff up from Gri- Texas. Griffin, Griffin. Yes, yes, yeah, good guy. Um, yeah, great guy. And we were out 
night walking, and we heard a couple knocks coming down from the stream and field area that was to the south of camp. We are approximately about a third of a mile out in south, so to the east and south of camp roadwalk, when we heard a very clear wood knock come out. We walked over there. We did a couple of sounds. We walked down a couple of paths quite loudly, breaking branches and stuff, just making noise. Um, out and around, cut back through, did a loop up on one of the trails and back to the road. <clears throat> and then we turned back and we met a camp for the night. Um, not much else happened during that night except for the more knocking sounds from up on the ridge that echoed down and some coyotes. Um, the next night, we heard wood knocks coming and I believe I have my time frame correctly. I may have this wrong um, that night, but they weren't anything fantastic. But they were pretty clearly, it sounded like wood on wood. It wasn't It wasn't a limb dropping and hitting another piece of wood. It was a strike, something striking wood on wood or percussion sound of similar magnitude. Um, and it kind of repeated that. We I think we had a friend of mine, a friend of, Kirk and mine named Bill up there, along with Scott. And we did a road walk again, the same kind of route, a little bit farther, about a mile and a half that night. Um, what else? We sat around and just cooked on our stoves a lot. We laughed and talked in camp. Not much happened that night. And then we went out on the third night. Third night, we uh, went out. We went, oh, I mean, I take that back. First on the second day, we did scouting. Then on the third night, the third—I mean, the third day—we did day scouting around to find good bedding areas, and uh, we found a lot of sign that bear were in the area. A lot, quite a bit. Scat tracks, um, torn up logs, old torn out bees' nests, a bunch of stuff that showed that the animals that large omnivores were up there. Um, the third night rolled in. Now this was—I was sleeping in my car. Um, I was on the northern side of camp, Kirk was on the southern side, and Cliff parked his truck down in, downward, down the slope about 20 yards, 20-ish yards, down and around this little circle drive, where you and, uh, um, you and Larry parked the truck when you came up? Yeah, 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 uh, sorry, Larry, yeah, Larry Turner. Yeah. Where, where you and Larry parked the truck the the other time, that's where their truck was back, back before, uh, dro- drove up right there. Um, and they put their tents kind of, or both of them put up tents kind of close to my car, right near the tailgate. I was in the car all closed up. I had it slipped down just far enough that I could get my thermal out the crack of the window. I was running thermal DVR. Kirk was running thermal DVR all night, both of us. Um, Kirk was pointed straight south down in the cedar thicket uh, over his tent with his therm, and mine was pointed directly north. I was pretty certain that if anything was going to come in, it was coming in from the direction of the knock um, the, from the previous night, uh, and then going to come around the swamp line and come in toward our tent area. That's why I had Kirk point his down the other direction to cover the opposite. Well, Approximately on the third night, 
was 11. No, was not, it was 9, 9.40-something. We heard the first knock way off, and it was a clear, excellent, beautiful knock. It was just like that the knock sound that you think of that you want to hear, just that clear, clear, clear would knock. And I, I, we kind of got excited. Um, and then about 20 minutes later, after we're starting, our excitement was starting to ramp down a little bit, another one, approximately another 120 to 130 yards closer. Because they were way, they were off, but they were off enough, not so far you couldn't understand that they were not. Um, and then it was closer. And it was slightly from the north, now more north, slightly more to the east, but only about 15 degrees off from straight north. Um, about 20 more minutes later, right, right, like 280, 300 yards, maybe 320 yards from camp, there was a beautiful, just close range, loud, on the side of a tree. It was so close that it was like we all had the sound locked in our head that the next day we went out and we were uh, looking at the trees to try to find where the animal had been striking the tree. It was that close. We thought we could find the tree. Um, very clear knock. And then we heard movement all of a sudden. Uh, about 15 minutes later, so approximately it's 11.40, 11.30, um, and there was movement all the way out of nowhere coming down around the backside of the swamp line, down the slope toward the where their truck was parked, where your guys' truck was later parked, but down that slope uh, another 60 yards or so, down uh, toward the edge of that swamp line. You know where it wraps. Whatever it was was following that. Well, it got approximately at where the nose of your truck would have been, uh, but down the hill, and we could hear it just down there breaking stuff, little taps, and a couple stomping sounds. Uh, but we we we, can, we kept hearing it move, and me and Shelly are sitting in the chairs getting excited. Um, but again, we're trying to maintain composure and take note of what time things were happening. Um, I forgot to mention on the other night, we had we had rocks thrown into our camp that, and sticks, rocks and sticks thrown into our camp that bounced off the trees and bounced off my car. We have audio of all of that, and I believe Kirk has assembled a really nice little video documenting all of those sounds, which are just phenomenal. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Like very well, very clear. Like anybody who listens to that can tell that it's not just, you know, an acorn falling. We actually found the rocks and one of the pieces of wood, which I believe was put into the write-up of the report. Yes. Um, but, yeah, um, and that was after you guys got there? No, right? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, so we, we, we showed up after the fact. I mean, we showed up yeah, yeah, just, yeah. just yeah, like okay. the, the day after all this transpired. And I did hear knocks yeah. and everything. Uh, I have some of those, those recorded, you know, but uh, we had missed the main event, which was uh, yeah, yeah. pretty profound. Well, anyways, it got down to approximately where the truck was at, down toward where the swamp starts to wrap into the, where the field clips out, and it starts to open up and isn't quite as thick. Well, the sound got there. Nothing happened for approximately 45 minutes, so we started to think that our visitor had kind of taken off. Uh, and then uh, 
out of nowhere, there was one bigger sound uh, that got our attention. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was loud enough for us to take notion to kind of turn our chairs just very slightly. Both of us were sitting. I was facing straight toward the... I was sitting on the on, under the awning facing straight toward the uh, east, and so was Shelly. But Shelly was on my right side. I was approximately five inches further forward than she was and kind of having to look over my shoulder to talk to her, and my chair was slightly angled. But we were approximately like within 15, within 10 degrees of view of the same exact area where the thing would later cross. Well, she was talking, and she just glances down the hill, and I'm talking to her. We're talking about something Bigfoot, of course, um, while we're listening. And we're just trying to be normal and create voices in camp and be interesting. Uh, she said, do you see that? Down, down, down there's something moving. I'm sure, I swear, I just saw something move. And I go to kind of rebuttal it just like, oh, she's excited. She's going to see something she wants to see. And so I'm like, you know, there are elk in the area. And no sooner do I get the word elk out my mouth. And I glance down. And we're both looking in the same direction at this point, slightly degrees from each other, like maybe three feet from each other. And see this absolutely massive silhouette, just this humongous silhouette that is, it looked like a ginormous NBA player just in a black suit walking down the slope of the hill away from us and kind of was like turned just slightly away from us. Like um, we're looking down over to our right, over our right shoulders down towards it and it looks like it's walking uh, at a diagonal away and down from us. Uh, and we got the whole view was approximately five seconds, three to five seconds of this thing walking down the slope away from us. But it looked like it was at a walking, you know, cadence, its leg and arm swing, but it looked like it was moving at a clip that we would have to run to achieve. Or at least jog down the hill to mm-hmm. achieve sound, not a single sound. We just both kind of froze for about till the just thing got out of sight and I jumped out of my chair and I said, Shelly, I saw it too. Shelly, you saw the same thing I saw. We both saw it. And we both just kind of like exploded with little bits of excitement about the fact that we just both saw this ginormous silhouette of upright, very clearly upright, arms and legs, wide, wide shoulders. This is a big, it looked humongous. It looked, this would be by far the largest one I've ever gotten to look at. It was easily approaching eight foot tall. Just just judging on where we later found its hips were at, it had to have been close. Yeah. Um, the shoulders were so wide. It You know, this thing was easily double double and a half wide that I am. Easily. So you're talking something with shoulders approximately across approaching what? Let me think. Uh, Close to 46 inches, almost 46 inches across at the shoulders. Just Yeah, I mean, I've been down to that area and you and Shelley described the same thing, which is fascinating, and we'll touch well, upon that here in a sec. A, this but is the cool part. Yeah, huge. Before yeah. we even started really, really heavily discussing 
the details of what we saw and where we saw it. We didn't walk over and point it out to each other. Shelly said, okay, let's stop what we're doing and not talk about it right now, but go get your tablet and paper and draw what you saw. So I just so happened, said, I said, okay, let's do this. She started working on what she was doing. I started working on what I was doing. And the next day I took a picture, turned it to black and white to symbolize how much moonlight we had. And I took my paint feature on my tablet and I sketched it in, what I saw. And she drew out on paper, uh, looking at the actual spot, like up and down looking at it and drawing it, where she saw it. And then we sat in our chairs and we, I handed her mine and she handed me hers. And that's the moment both of us realized that we both saw the exact same animal from the exact same place with slightly different angles at slightly different times, but the same animal nonetheless going the same direction in that and, moment and, of the report. And, and they were identical and that was in key. size comparison. That was key. What? That yeah, was key. But we didn't talk about, we didn't say. No. We didn't talk about the like the angle we saw it at or anything. We just drew what we saw and compared, and they were yeah. direct matches. Direct matches. Right. It, it, and so it was amazing. And, yeah, it was amazing. And so uh, Larry Turner and I uh, showed up the following night, and uh, and had we had you know. Um, basically got filled in on what had transpired, the audio. I, I listened to some audio and stuff, and I was just well, kind of blown away. Photographing of the uh, the photography of the all the uh, little objects that had landed in camp that were on top of Pine oh, yeah. and Laney. Uh, I that still was have thing. It was very one of those. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 um, we noted very clearly when we got into camp, I first thing I do is I get out and scout my perimeter and find out what's in the area so I can recognize if anything unusual shows up. Because in my previous experiences, like at home, you know, large boulders show up in the middle of paths and stuff like that when seemingly Bigfoot activity is taking place. Um, so I, I just am in the habit of that. None of these objects that we later found were there until the next morning after the audio event of the throwing event, of all the throwing and knocking. Uh, so it was very key, and they were laying on top of pine needles, and they were, some of the items looked like they had been sitting in partially into the ground a little while, and then pulled up and then thrown in on top of the fresh pine needles, and we even found places where they, like, had bounced off the car and landed right next to the tent. Uh, one of them hit, like, near the tent. Uh, you can clearly hear one hitting my car, bouncing and hitting a tree, and then landing on the ground right next to Shelly's tent, Right. Waking Shelly up and freaking her out <laughs> very clearly in the audio. Yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, I was very, I was very fortunate with Larry Turner. Uh, Larry yeah. Turner and I showed up kind of late, and we were fortunate to listen to some of the audio that Kirk had recorded, that Shelly had recorded preliminary. I didn't listen to everything, just some of the key things. And what was really cool was that I got to see um, – what you had drawn up and what had Shelley had kind of drawn up, I mean, and shared, um, you guys had basically after this uh, initial this sighting out there, um, you know, and kudos to Shelley Covington. She was like, no, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to uh, talk about it. Let's just draw what we saw, and it matched up perfectly. I mean, you saw. Uh, it was kind of, once again, reminds me of the Patterson-Gimlin 
uh, film, where you saw one clip of film and she saw another clip of the film, but it well, yeah, matched we were up at perfectly. Two different lanes, different angles, very slightly. I was exactly. approximately between five inches and a foot in front of her chair, like the front of her chair, the back of my chair would have been five inches between five inches and a foot in front of her where her knees would be, and off to the left, and she was back of me. I'm having to look over my shoulder a little bit to talk to her, so she's looking back and over the side of the hill and I'm kind of looking straight over the hill and watching this thing go down where she saw it just clip over the top of the hill and start to go down and we like yeah. sat in each other's places and saw where the pictures were taken from and where the drawing was taken from and we both had that realization at that moment that we just saw a super large dark colored biped that just moments after wood knocks and other sounds walked down and away from our camp completely silently with no flashlight down a hill, you know, from where I was at, you get down to the bottom of, there was fallen trees and swamp right. and holes that I fell into in that muck, in the edge of that field down there. There's that mucky swamp sink spots. You fall right in, you're going to get impale yourself on some of uh, the uh, rotten log, uh, logs that have dead limbs sticking out. But this yeah. thing yeah. navigated perfectly silently, with no issue, walked right through brambles, walked all the way down and around, into the elk pasture and out, with not not a single right. light, nothing. Let, let alone we're in a place yeah. where, one, nobody knew we were going until last minute. We didn't put anything out to anybody. Nobody knew we were there. Uh, nothing. No, w- so one of the things of note, one of, one of the things of note is that this is a an area where um, – there's a history of Sasquatch activity, and some uh, some well-known people have filmed some stuff here. Uh, but I will say that uh, when I when Larry and I Larry Turner and I had arrived out there, um, you know, and uh, I mean, I remember nothing really transpired or happened that night. But it, I got up really early that morning, and I heard some crazy knocks going on. And uh, Larry and I had had decided to do a little hike. About a quarter mile away from the camp, just to uh, we we were up early. I mean, we're talking like six in the yeah. morning. We're up early. We're hiking around, and 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 Larry was about maybe twenty feet in front of me, and he said, "Hey, what the frick? Uh, there's this, you know, I, I found something." So I walk up, and I'm looking at it, going, "Holy, holy smokes, that is." A really good impression. I mean, it was in in this really fine like suit, really fine um, <laughs> dusty oh, white uh, oil. Yeah. Oh, it was filtered. I mean, it was just really fine, and, and but it was a perfect impression of a heel, and a foot, and toes. It was perfect. What was the size of um, there was, was almost no way. What? I'm sorry. What's that? What was the size again? Was it approximately like 18 inches or 17 inches or something like that? Yeah, it was around 16 and a half to 17 inches. Um, but it was just so, so, uh, it was so outline, perfect. The outline was you phenomenal. Know? Oh, yeah, it was phenomenal like the, because it was it when it was fresh. Because I'll tell you what, if it, we could have, if it weren't for the the perfect lighting that morning, we would have walked right by it. But we had great lighting. And it just was there um, on on this old logging road that was closed off, and and the um, 
uh, Larry had seen it, and I walk up and, I, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm I'm going, holy moly, man, that's a that's a great impression. I mean, that's a that's a foot, that's a foot, and you can see that it was the left foot, and the right foot would yeah, have led on to uh, a bunch of pine needles and stuff. You never would have found another impression, um, but it was just the left foot, and it was so pristine that if if there was a if it was really windy out there it would have knocked us over you never oh, yeah. would have seen the it. moment that the moment you would have had uh the heat of the sun on it and a uh, five mile an hour breeze it would have been gone oh gone gone i mean it was just perfect and so it, i was like holy moly this is one of the best uh without a doubt probably the best impression i've ever seen in person um and I was I was blown away. And it, what was really cool was the whole scenario when we add up what you and 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 Shelley had experienced and heard and seen. It it really made sense. Uh, and I was like, holy smokes, wow! Uh, you guys did in fact see a Sasquatch that night, and <clears throat> we have an impression here. Now to cast this impression would have been near impossible. And now, no, 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 I could fine, have tried to fine. way too fine. I could try to. To uh, bring the hairspray out there and do my casting, you know, <clears throat> whatnot. But it would have just—I mean, this this powder was so fine, uh, <laughs> it was near impossible. I so will tell pictures. You, I, I did some practice. Yeah. Uh, just as a note, yeah, I know people are worried about using the hairspray on a fine grade track like that in like the silty sifted sand or the even the high like almost talcum powder type consistency uh, substrate. But you can in fact use it. Um, you have to hold yeah. it much higher, another eight inches higher than the six inches they recommend, um, and let in like a spray it straight forward and let it cascade down onto the track as a mist. And you're going to go through about a third of the can before you can make yeah. it, you know, dense enough to support the weight of, of a casting. But it can be done. Right. I, I tried it yeah. in uh, Oregon on my own footprint. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. But yeah, I understand what you mean. Uh, that really fine grade stuff is hard to work with. It gets good. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, Nathaniel, we're going to run out of time here, and thank God this is a pre-recorded show so people can listen to it uh, longer um, than on if it was live. But um, uh, truly amazing stuff going on here. And I just uh, – what's in your future? Um, what are your plans um, down the road here? And uh, where where is – research going i mean uh for you and for what you're looking at well 2017 is going to be a very big year for me i'm going to be moving back to the pacific northwest area uh particularly washington around olympia uh area it looks like uh come uh late march to april um uh, i and my uh wonderful girlfriend will be moving up then after she finishes school. Um, and I'll probably be transferring with my current job. Um, and lots and lots of plans, lots and lots of friends to catch up with. Um, yes. Again, we're, me and you, we're going to have to be out a ton, like a load. Me and you are going to be out in the field like crazy. Um, oh, all yeah. over and hopefully revisiting that exact place. Um, I'm hoping to do a lot more work in that area in particular, uh, at least one other area, at least two or three parts of Oregon and up in the Olympics to do a little more work with the Olympic project uh, specifically. 
Um, and uh, just basically to go back to what I call home. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm currently in Southern California and uh, back on my legs again after a couple of catastrophes. But uh, due to the support of some great people and some friends I have, uh, I'm doing very well. And uh, I cannot wait to be back. I have seriously missed uh, all of you guys out that way. Uh, it, it's it, it's graded on me a little bit to be out this far away from what I call home and friends and family. I'll be back. Well, you have a big fan base, a big support group, and uh, big things are on the agenda, I mean, down the road here. I mean, uh, I'm moving, Very like good. you, to Washington. I live in Oregon. I'm moving to Washington likewise. But it's where I'm being pulled to, to move to, and I want to continue on with the subject. And I, I take it so serious, like you do, uh, Nathaniel. And uh, uh, I know what it takes. I, I do know what it takes to get the subject proper um, adherence and, and research on. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a very important thing to me. I know it's important to you. So I'm looking forward to collaborating, being in the field with you. Uh, down the road here. I think 2017 is going to be a fantastic year. And uh, I think um, big things are on the agenda. I really do. Uh, and I'm excited. So, uh, Nathaniel, I just want to thank you for uh, for uh, sharing your uh, experiences, your you know your encounters, and your, your thoughts and insight. We'll have you back on the show soon because uh, we only touched upon – we only picked yeah, the only a fraction of the things that we wanted to. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry yeah. uh, for rambling yeah. Yeah. so long uh, no. about some of my experiences and such. It's just uh, that was the, no, not the, the big no. thing that got me in. And uh, hopefully next time we can go uh, straight to the uh, other discussions of, of some more of the data-specific um, aspects like uh, – Force yeah. composition map that I was working on, uh, some long-term audio and thermal projects that I'm planning out and that uh, I'd already touched upon in Washington. And uh, Hopefully uh, we'll get to that uh, next installment, I'm sure, like a part two or something. I don't know. Uh, whatever you want. Yeah, no, for, no, for uh, sure. Inside. We will do a part two uh, because we just basically touched upon who is Nathaniel York and what it was his experiences. We'll, we'll definitely need to have another show where we touch upon where that has progressed and your ideas into this field of research and what you're doing now. I mean, that's a whole other show, and it's going to be a fantastic show, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing it. So we'll do it soon. We'll definitely do it soon. And okay. uh, yeah, But, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to having you out. And so... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there, but Hey, uh, thank you for joining us and, uh, you know, have a great night. Yeah, you too. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, monster extras. Thanks you. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And, um, you know, I'm very appreciative of all those listeners out there and I'm really, uh, thankful for, um, I get so many messages and emails and text messages and everything else from people that really enjoy Monstrex Radio and what we're doing. And we try. We're, you know, I'm not saying we're the best out there, but I'm telling you, we, we do strive to bring you guys a great show. 
um, uh, you know, and hopefully down the road here we'll get more encounters. Um, there's plenty of encounters out there. People are just not willing to share. I mean, true, really true encounters. Uh, you can get anybody on the show, any show, to discuss uh, an encounter. And <clears throat> we what we strive for here at Monterey is getting those encounters that um, we feel there's merit to it. So um, I know that's what a lot of people love to listen to, and that's actually what I love as well. But there's a lot of people out there doing great work. And it's an exciting time, too, because we are in uh, a time where I think we're just around the corner from proving the existence of Sasquatch. That's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong, and I have no no um, problem saying that. But people like Nathaniel... Um, and Shelly Cummington and um, everybody involved in, you know, a limit project. And there's many groups out there that are doing really great research and um, bring stuff to the table that's, you know, mind-boggling. Um, but as a collaborative effort, I think it's important that we discuss these issues and uh, bring those that I think that are doing important things in the field to the forefront. So I hope you feel the same way. Uh, anyways, uh, thank you all for joining us here on Monster X Radio. Until next time, Shane Corson here, and uh, wishing you all a happy week, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us here. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.